This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Did you know that words can shape the way we feel? That the framing of language can influence the way we think and feel about certain events or situations? So, how exactly does language shape emotions? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Sharifa Aisha. She's the Deputy Dean of Research at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Sharifa. It's been a while. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Dashran. Thanks for having me here. Happy to be here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, perhaps you can start by just giving me an overview of the role words play in shaping emotions. Thanks. Yes. So, you know, um, it's not just because we're linguists, but language is so important in everything. Um, It it shapes the world for us. Um, It impacts everyone starting from, you know, when they're born and they're they're pre-verbal. Words mirror how people feel and think and... um, I want to talk about language as as uh, based in a context, right? We're not talking mm-hmm. about just, um, of course, the specific words matter. They can shape people's emotions. I mean, all of us have been in arguments that may have started out by just one particular word. Why did you call me that? <laughs> and it, it can spark our emotions. Um this, of course, touches on different areas, not just linguistics, but has been extensively studied in psychology, neuroscience. Uh, as a linguist, of course, I, I'm not that expert in the matters of the human brain, but a lot of research has shown um, that when um, not just when uh, people react emotionally to, to certain words, there's certain parts of the brain that um, react in studies when they hear certain words. And those are also considered to be parts of the brain that are related to specific emotions. Um, but also when, when people talk um, talk about language, uh, talk about their emotions, we have seen in talk therapy, right, in psychotherapy, um, it just, just doesn't shape our emotions, but um, using language can help us uh, modulate or express our emotions too. So, um, yeah, so that would be where um, people would, uh, I think generally in um, research, it has indicated that words and emotions are somehow connected in the human brain. But we don't know exactly what the specific mechanisms are, but there's definitely a lot of evidence to show that. So before we get deeper into it and explore how different languages um also have their perhaps their own vocabulary that can carry certain emotions. Let's just look at you know language more broadly. And um, what is the role of linguistic markers, let's say tone and intonation, when it comes to conveying specific emotions? Yeah, so this goes back to what I was talking about, right? We can't talk about language or words in isolation, Mm. but in the context in which they're delivered. So I might, you know, you might be able to call someone something really bad, but when you are delivering it with a certain kind of expression or um, certain kind of discourse markers or or, uh, paralinguistic features like laughter, that will also um, affect the perception or the understanding of meaning that the person has uh, of the words you're conveying. So absolutely, these discursive markers, um, uh, things like intonation, voice, and of course, the the facial expression, I think, is something that we can't, uh, in face-to-face conversation, we cannot um, remove that from from the whole idea of language. Um, By extension, in text, uh, in text uh, language, we would look at the the 
uh, pictures and things like that, right? Like when we're texting the emojis as well, they are also markers. So you might say something harsh like why were you late but you put an emoji there and that kind of um, changes the whole tone so definitely these are uh, things that we might think of as very minor actually have a huge uh, um, role in creating meaning and therefore in um, the reader or the audience's perceptions of the emotion that you're conveying right and that's interesting uh, something interesting you brought up is that even when we look at the same word or the same sentence um, it can change meaning based on our intonation, our tone, what emojis we use. Let's say even if we take cuss words like the F-bomb, for example, um, if we, you know, it's that one word, but if sometimes we use it, we may use it a lot with our friends and it may be very friendly and we may be laughing while we use the word. But at the same time, um, if we are angry, that same word can take on a different meaning, right? How do you see that? That even like something like cuss words, depends on who you're using it, how you use it, um, it can take on different meanings. Yeah, so that all goes back to the context, right? Um, I think for some of us, uh, cuss words are not necessarily um, foul, right? They're mm. not actually, uh, necessarily aggressive. And people use it even sometimes just to connect, right, right. Uh, with each other. Um, if somebody is using um, certain words and then you also respond with, you know, not, you know, with those kind of words in your language, I think it kind of um, makes a connection. But um, to say that, uh, of course, the context is important, but for some people, certain words could be always cuss words, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for, um, it depends on your perspective. So I think that's why it's really important uh, for us to know the context and when we're, what we're, you know, the context in which we're communicating with and the audience. And that goes back to um, <clears throat> selecting the appropriate words um, for the context. So um, I always um, emphasize this. I'm a discourse analyst. So when we uh, are analyzing language, if we don't know what the context is, it'll be very hard to to um, accurately analyze the meaning. Um, so yeah, uh, words can mean different things in different situations. I don't think there's an inherent meaning of a particular word uh, per se, right? It right. depends on how um, I'm using it and how you are uh, understanding it and comprehending it. So that brings me to um, how you can use words to describe a particular event differently. So it's that one event, people from two different um, perspectives are looking at it, languages, they use different words to talk about the event. I, I'm wondering, Dr. Sharifa, how or can the framing of language influence the way we interpret certain events? Um, especially if, let's say, you are someone who is putting out a story or writing a news article or whatever that may be, writing a novel, um, presenting something, right? Um, can the way we use language in influence how people on the receiving end interpret certain events? Absolutely. Uh, language is so powerful and that's why, you know, people want to control media and language, you know, and, and information platforms. Um, how something is framed creates a reality. Our journalists like yourself would know that. Um, for example, if we look at um, how a political event or a particular event, uh, current event is conveyed, um, it can be portrayed as something good or bad. For example, we can use some examples um, of recent events. Um, um, for example, if somebody says X number of 
uh, Palestinians died in the conflict, and you don't mention who the aggressor is or the manner in which they died, it can conceal certain truths or downplay certain um, aspects of an event. Uh, even the word conflict, are we talk, you know, are we, do we use the word conflict? Do we use the word war? All these words will um, influence the way we interpret certain events. But this isn't just um, for journalists, right? All of us are creating realities when we represent something. And that's why it's really important for us to uh, be careful uh, about the words that we use. Um, sometimes people might say, it's so trivial. Why, you know, why must we put things in certain way why do we have to use the word person and not man like chairperson and not chair chairman but um th these are powerful things right they create a, a certain uh, um reality or representation of the event uh i work in healthcare discourse and uh, we talk about using person-centered language hmm. a person with diabetes compared to a diabetic I think that creates a different reality. And for somebody who's reading it as well, it has a powerful impact on how um, they view the identity of the people that we're talking about. Other examples are like um, uh, in, in terms of talking about refugees, uh, are they asylum seekers, um, the word migrant, illegal migrant, uh, refugee, they all convey different uh, realities and that can influence uh, how people perceive a, a particular event. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes it really does appear, I think, on the surface as something very trivial, like something, why does it really matter, right? Like you brought up the, you know, Israel-Palestine example. I think people have now, um, you know, over the years, but let's say since it really intensified since October, people have done a lot of um, studies and, and you know, put, or even just on social media, people put screenshots that have, a lot of times when it comes to Western mainstream media, whenever an Israeli um, civilian um, passes away, that is tragic as well. But the words they will use is um, Israeli child killed. You know, but whenever a Palestinian uh, civilian uh, passes away, then it's Palestinian child found dead or Palestinian under 18 found dead. You know, it's, it, it seems trivial, right? Um, you know, what, but when we see there's a repeated pattern, I, I'm wondering what's the impact, right? When you, when you do something like that, because there's a repeated pa pattern, it seems like a sort of a consorted effort um, to whenever uh, one side dies, it is found dead. Whenever the other side died, it, they are killed or murdered or massacred. You know, um, what's the impact of that? Because on the surface, some people might think, actually, what's the difference? They're just talking about someone who died. I mean, it's a huge difference, right? Uh, and that is uh, why it's so important for us to have different sources of information. Uh, one thing I think um, is uh, we might think that there's ultimately some underlying motive behind why things are portrayed a certain way, but it, it may not necessarily always be the case. Of mm. course, there, there, there is, but also uh, we can't say that every journalist who wrote that way was having a particular motive as well, right? but it influences or it shapes how you, you view things and then you perpetuate it as well, right? If I always hear something written a certain way, then when I'm talking about it, I I also will most likely frame it in that way that I've received it and um, unless I'm conscious about it. And I think that's why um, it's important to discuss and look at these things. And, it's, uh, and, and we have seen in social media, people are getting aware of these details. They do see um, that why they're important. So it's not just the words, but also even being um, represented in the first place. Um, 
why people talk about representation, why it's so important to have people of um, people with disabilities in, in sitcoms or people uh, naming the people in certain stories or compared to reducing them to an unnamed or, you know, mass group of people. I think that that also plays a big role. Like if you see in uh, human stories, they will talk about certain um, asylum seekers or refugees and talk about them by name and put a face to it versus like a big mass of people. I think that also will make a difference. So not just the words, but also inclusion or exclusion in the story, um, whether you are quoted or not, giving you a voice or not, in the story also makes a, a plays a big role in framing and where does it connect to emotion um you know words like killed versus found dead i think um will spark certain emotions about uh, justice or fairness right um compared to a more neutral term and that is where uh the choice of word is very powerful so not just to search for a synonym and replace it right uh because it, it will could mean a totally different thing and you know, just, um, you know, diving deeper into this discussion about how language, sometimes, like you said, people may not purposely do it. Um, they may just be sort of um, regurgitating um, things that they have, you know, consumed over the years as well. Um, sometimes we see it in, let's say, um, um, when, you know, covering athletics and, and sports, um, you know, when, let's say, if there is a, a male um, athlete, um, you know, unhappy with what the, the referee did, so he throws the racket on the ground and then, you know, just starts yelling and, and storms off and things like that. And then let's say the next day, the news report comes up, you know, ex-athlete in a show of passionate um, outbursts against the referee, um, things like that, storms off the pitch, you know. And then if let's say the same thing a, a female athlete does and then the, uh, you know, the report comes out next day, you know, uh, you know, athlete, um, in high, high, what hysteria? His hysteric athlete throws a tantrum before you know burst, uh, storming the, uh, off the field. Again, I think sometimes people don't realize why this is important. What does that? How does those kind of language shape the way um, we feel? And in this case, I guess we're talking about let's say um, you know how we feel about one gender versus the other. What's the power of using language like that? Well, this is the thing, right? Language uh, will perpetuate certain stereotypes um, or we can use it to break stereotypes and get people to think a certain way. And that's why I think um, we need to be very conscious uh, about about how we select certain words. You know, the angry black woman, um, mad cat lady. There, there, there are certain uh, stereotypes about women uh, and um when their expressions of emotion might be conveyed as hysterical. I think even the fact that you've given these two examples shows uh, that they're, they're enduring kinds of uh, stereotypes. Um, I think this is less and less uh, um, seen nowadays. You know, I think anyone who's in the media is... Uh, most people who are in the media will be aware of the need to be gender neutral and inclusive. Um, not just by the realities it creates. I mean, it's not very socially acceptable also nowadays, right? <laughs> um, which is good. I think we need these kind of guidelines. We need uh, to sensitize people against certain things. Um, and we have guidelines for these things, right? Uh, we have training for for uh, for people to be more mindful about how they're conveying certain um, people. And even though that particular female tennis player might be known to be uh, hysterical or emotional, 
the impact, right? Because uh, that is what people will read and 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 see that not it's not talking about an individual, but it's a female uh, specifically. So maybe um, it's important, I think, not just in sports but in other uh, areas, to be careful about the words that we're using to represent uh, people. Alright, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. Sharifa Aisha, Deputy Dean of Research at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University Malaya. We will continue our conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Sharifa Aisha, Deputy Dean of Research at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University Malaya. And we're talking about how language shapes emotions. So, Dr. Sharifa, one of the terms um, I came across a lot when doing um, some research on this topic is linguistic relativity. Um, what is that and how does it shape emotional experiences? Okay, so linguistic relativity, um, it is a controversial topic, right? Uh, in Not just in linguistics, but I guess in social science. Um, it came out from the idea that um, language shapes or language determines thought, right? Mm. Um, and uh, I think people have argued about this for a very long time. Um, the idea was that um, the words we use, for example, you know, they always give this example of a, um, certain groups of Inuit people have a hundred different ways to express snow, but um, um, others just have one word to talk about snow, for example, and that constrains how we think about snow. Um, of course, they have... Uh, um, Many people have argued against this, and I think generally now they talk about linguistic determinism, right? Right. As the strong version of it, language determines thought, and um, but I think now uh, people kind of have mm, kind of disputed that because it's very limiting and also doesn't um, account for the fact that. Uh, people shape language too, right? We right. coin words, and environment shapes language as well. So the, it might uh, it might influence you in a certain way, or the way you think. Um, but there are other things there in the environment, in the context that are also there shaping your thoughts. And humans, you know, we are creative. We're always evolving. We create new things. And when the, a certain word may not. Be, you know, we, we make up new words for new emotions, new feelings. So that it's in itself is evident, uh, evidence that language does not restrict us, right? Um, it might lead us to somewhere, but we still have a very powerful cognitive um, processes that enable us to transcend language and create new things. So, yeah, um, and in the, the same way, if we're connecting it to emotion, um, like the words, right? Words can um, uh, restrict the emotions. For example, if you look at the kind of words we have to express our emotions, right? There's maybe some feelings that um, uh, uh, we don't have words for yet in a particular language, but uh, eventually people will come up with the right. words to express it, right? Because that is what we do. We, we, we you know, where we express things and we come up and create new words. So um, there are uh, cultural differences in, in emotional words, actually. Um, there was a huge study by um, Jackson um, et al. Uh, in 2019, and they looked at um, 
over 2,000 languages and they looked at the way feelings specifically are talked about in different cultures. And again, of course, there's always no clear answer. There are some universals, but then there are differences. And I think one interesting thing in that paper was that they said um, um, they looked at uh, emotions like colors. For example, there are some certain basic primary colors, right? Those are the universals, um, fear, sadness, happiness. Um, but then the hues, and these are where we don't find the same exact thing across languages. Um, and and that, those are shaped by the context, right? For example, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but the Germans have a word called Weltschmerz okay. to refer to a feeling of a sadness caused by the state of the world. Right. But then there was another uh, example they gave uh, of a tribe in Papua New Guinea. They have a word, um, awumbuk, that describes a social hangover after that me that leaves you feeling um, unmotivated or, or um, listless after visitors have left. Right. Okay. So, like you know, <laughs> those are feelings that we might come up with. I don't know, sedih, marana. You know, yes. they're different. Um, uh, emotion words that we have to coin based on our need and our, you know, daily lives and what we experience. So uh, linguistic relativity, I think, is there to some extent, but it's not the only thing. We can create and we can uh, think of new feelings, uh, new words to express different types of feeling. Yeah, I think that is very fascinating, right? Because, um, you know, when you look at linguistic relatively or relativity or even something like, let's say, the Sapirov um, hypothesis, which I've uh, did, had you on and we've talked about that, I think, a couple of years ago or something like that. Um, it, it suggests that um, when you speak certain languages, let's say if there's a community where there's no patriarchal language, then there's a high chance that this community won't be patriarchal. But I guess like what you're saying, the, the counter argument to that is, you know, you can, let's say if this, this culture has patriarchal tendencies, even if they have no words to describe it, they can just come up with a new word to then encapsulate their patriarchal um, tendencies or whatever it may be. So on that ex couple of examples you gave, right, something about um, describing how you, you feel, would you say that, only if you have the language to describe that emotions, can you truly express and understand what you're feeling? Or is it just a matter of if your language or whatever language you speak can doesn't have a word for that, you, you are just saying, oh, I, I'm feeling like this. I just don't know how I'm feeling. How, how do you see that? Do you need to have a way to describe how you're feeling to be able to really reflect on what you're feeling. There is a lot of evidence showing that we need to, you know, talking about our feelings is a positive thing, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about how we feel or, or giving a word or describing negative feelings can help to modulate those feelings, right? Um, these are from studies in psycho psychology, in, in neuroscience, that we need to talk about it. So if we don't have the words to describe a feeling, then we may be limited in, in, in being able to, Firstly, identify that we're feeling that way um, and also then express it and maybe get help for it if it's a negative uh, feeling. But then, you know, I mean, the word hangry, right? I mean, we, 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 we may eventually come up with a noun. 
But as you said, we can describe it in 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 a sentence. We can describe it. I feel like this, this, this. Um, you know, the 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 feeling you get when you've been waiting five hours to buy concert tickets, and then right. suddenly the you know, like you you can describe it in other ways. You don't need the noun or the emotional noun to talk about it. And maybe eventually, when we talk about certain feelings enough, and they're shared, we come up with a term um to 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 describe it but then sometimes we just have a meme to describe it too mm -hmm. now right we don't need a word we a visual could could describe it as well and we've seen that right there's certain the slap meme um the one with the little boy who's looking you know like that those are maybe feelings that we can't necessarily name but we recognize that they're there right so just to change the question a little bit would you say that if someone speaks multiple languages, they have a broader emotional palette? Or would you say that someone who speaks multiple languages just knows how to describe their emotions more specifically? Huh. Well, that is the thing, right? That is the the, the argument for mm -hmm. multilingualism, and and that is one thing that I did I, I wanted to mention as well. Which thanks for bringing it up. If language shapes and can influence how we how we feel and how, you know how we view the world and 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 what we think and by extension what we do, right? Then someone who has multiple languages has a bigger like toolkit, right? Right. Um, and that is why people always you know like it's so good. Um, for people to learn languages, they always encourage it. It gives you a different way to view things. I feel there would definitely be, I don't know whether, because what are we saying when we say emotion? It is a, a some kind of reaction in the brain, right? So, and scientists still haven't figured out the exact underlying mechanisms, but it's, I think it's always going to be a good thing, right? To have more of um, a certain toolkit, references. You, Why would you want like one book in your library when you could have five or ten? Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you need to like... Um, be fluent in a particular language in, in a particular language in order to gain from it we can look and learn from uh, we can learn about um emotion words for example in other languages and and read you know there's so much stuff out there um you don't have to learn a language for 12 years in order to be able to benefit from some of the concepts and a lot of the concepts we have are borrowed right um from different um i think there's the there's different words that we take from other languages um, when we see that, hey, this is a word that describes something that we don't have in English or Malay. Right. We do use those words, and 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 I think that's quite common already. So, of course, we as a linguist, we would want to encourage people to learn multiple languages. And, and you know, we just celebrated International Mother Language Day. Um, we definitely lose out when we lose out languages, right? When languages die, we will lose a bunch of words maybe that could describe things that are not there in other languages. So yeah, um, definitely I think bilingualism or multilingualism will play a role in this. Speaking of um, expressing emotions, what is the role of metaphors and, and analogies in encapsulating and conveying emotions? Metaphors and analogies, they're really powerful. I mean, we see in literature, they're used a lot um, because they can convey not just uh, emotions or but 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 visualizations that may be powerful and going back to what we were talking about media framing 
um, you know, you have metaphoric language like a, a wave of refugees or a flood of migrants. And these are like, you know, I mean, they did find the the, the weather metaphor or the natural disaster metaphor was very commonly used when talking about refugees. Now, what do you think about, like when you're thinking about a wave of refugees, right? It is some big thing coming. And then what kind of... Um, uh, reaction does that spark, right? I need to protect myself. I need. We need to put up dams. We need to do this and that. So, uh, metaphoric language is is powerful, um, and it can be done in a very indirect way. And I think that's why we need to watch out for those. But then again, it's also a beautiful way to convey things, right? All right. Other than I know we always want to like nowadays. It's like be direct, be simple. But they they also give us a. a, a an interesting and creative way to convey things. So there, there's always the good and bad, and it depends on how we how we use them. Um, Dr. Sharifa, can the language we use when describing ourselves, either in private or public, shape how we feel about ourselves and um, you know, shape our self-esteem? Yeah, so if language can create reality and identities, then it works both ways for we we don't just create identities for for others right when we talk about them but also for ourselves uh you know i am sure everyone has heard about um you know talking to the mirror mm -hmm. i am worthy i am beautiful i you know i'm confident um it, it sounds cheesy but um there's definitely a lot uh to be said for receiving powerful messaging right if if um receiving positive messages from others can help um, give us positive emotions and and shape how we view ourselves. Then what more the message we we give ourselves, um, the internal dialogue that we that we use to to describe ourselves. I think it would definitely um, uh, influence our emotions, how we perceive ourselves, and and by um, in that in that sense how we act as well. Right. Um, there is this idea that you may not feel it, but say it and tell yourself, you know, act as if and and it, it will follow. Right. So um, that, that's why I think you would hear um, in psychology or motivational speakers also tell people, you know, you have to have this positive self-talk and um, talk about yourself in a positive way. And if you have a negative internal dialogue, you eventually end up believing what you're telling yourself. And people always say, you know, you are your own harshest critic. What is the voice um, that that you are hearing inside? Um, I think that's very important. So um, maybe people want to try talking, you know, describing themselves in a more positive light. Although we might feel that... Um, it sounds arrogant or, you know, in our culture, it's not always considered good to to speak well, you know, to be think too highly of yourself. But that doesn't mean that you have to think negatively about yourself or use negative words to describe you, uh, yourself. You know, people might, you might hear someone say, oh, uh, you know, I'm feeling so fat or I, right. uh, I'm overweight, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm ugly. Um, some people may be fishing for compliments, but, you know, if you hear this enough about yourself, I think you would probably start believing it. Mm -hmm. So, and in that sense, it would influence, you know, affect your emotions in, in a negative way. Now, I want to talk to you uh, a little bit about this experiment, um, which I find very fascinating. So, it's this experiment um, centered around um, cuss words and swear words and a couple of uh, buckets of ice. So basically, there are two buckets of ice 
and two people. Um, and the game is um, you put your hand in the bucket of ice and tahan for as long as possible. The first person who takes out their hand loses. So person A is allowed to swear as loudly as possible all the cuss words you can do while putting your hand in the bucket of ice. And person B is not allowed to swear and make noise and, and things like that. So in most of the time when they do this experiment, person A can last longer. The person who is shouting all the cuss words while the hand is in the bucket gets to tahan longer. And then the person who is not allowed to express themselves, no cuss words and things like that, um, usually ends up taking their hands out of the bucket faster. Um, why do you think uh, this is the case? And is this does it go back to this idea of language shaping emotions and how we feel? Okay, for this one, right, I think it's more a physiological thing, right? Okay. Um, uh, because it's not language, they're screaming, mm -hmm. right? They're, okay. they're, they're, you know, when we use language, we're also doing a physical action, mm -hmm. right? When you're laughing, you are doing a physical action, right? You're exhaling um, oxygen or air from your mouth as well. It's not just a word that comes out, but you're doing something. I think here, I, I did read about that. Um, they found that the people who screamed more could could stay in the ice a bit longer right right um this is i, I maybe because uh screaming is a physical action as well right uh you, yes you might be using certain words but you're also um externalizing or making an, a physical action and maybe that helped um to distract or you know not to focus on the, right. the, the pain of the hand um i think that that this uh, experiment shows how you know words emotions and physical um things are so connected um there's this idea about screaming therapy right i mean near my house there are people who you know older people who work out at the park mm -hmm. and um if you go by in the morning you can sometimes see them do things like laughing or or you know not screaming but laughing um, they had this idea of like primal therapy um, and people did believe or there were some people who said that screaming helps you, um, just screaming, you know, not the cuss words or what, but screaming itself helps you uh, with your mental health or helps you externalize right. negative emotions. But then um, people have questioned that and said there's not that much evidence mm. for that. But in terms of being able to deal with pain, like physical pain, I think it it distracts you. It's like, you know, when you pinch you, this finger and then you've got another hand right. in water, it, it distracts you. I think that might be why. Not so much the words. Even if they said flower, roses, it might, and screamed it, it probably would have had the same, <laughs> same impact, you know? Right. All right. So um, before we wrap it up, Dr. Sharifa, would you have some final thoughts on the power of language to shape emotions? I think what we've talked about kind of um, underlines why we have people looking at so many different aspects of language. Language is powerful, uh, shapes reality, shapes the world. And of course, our emotions are part of that. Um, so maybe everyone can just think, be a little more mindful when we're using certain words, not just about other people, but about ourselves too. And um, maybe if we, are, we use more positive language, not just to describe our, uh, others, but also to describe ourselves, that can make us feel a bit better um, when we are facing uh, negative things or challenges. 
Dr. Sharifa, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Dr. Sharifa Aisha, Deputy Dean of Research at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University Malaya. If you missed any part of this conversation, we are also available on podcasts. You can look us up on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.